You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features William York III. By day, William is a senior financial analyst in the oil and gas industry, but he's also a blogger and co-founder of Proper, a contemporary creative agency and design studio. A New Orleans native, William and his family left their home just before Hurricane Katrina hit. At the time, William, who was then a high school student, did not know they would never return to that home, but would eventually relocate and make a life in Houston. While William had dreams of coming to the Northeast for college, life had other plans, and he opted to attend Texas Southern University, where he pursued a degree in accounting. During college, William was met with another drastic life change, fatherhood, a role he wasn't quite ready for at first, but learned to embrace wholeheartedly. While juggling school and work, William was met with an opportunity to interview for an internship in the energy sector, an interview that was to take place an hour after he was told about it. But William seized the moment and set himself on a career path that continues to this day. Now, when he's not budgeting and forecasting, he's working on creative projects through his agency and documenting life as an active girl dad on his blog, Catching My Stride. During our conversation, not only do we get into how he's balancing all of this and more, but also how evolving as a dad prompted him to forge a relationship with his own father. So without further ado, here's his story. William, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. Thanks for being here. So, you know, what I've noticed lately is the men have been killing it on these uh, virtual backgrounds. Like, you know, great aesthetic in the background. They've had some greenery, some books. So you've now uh, added yourself (laughs) along with the men who've had great uh, setups to do these interviews. So congratulations on that. Oh, wow. I didn't even think about it, but thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, anyway, listen, um, we we know this is, people don't really know when we record, but today is what we would call a day of rest. We're doing this on a Sunday. So let's jump mm-hmm. back, jump into it so you can get back to your day. All right? Sure. Sounds good. Okay. Who is William York III? William York III. That's a great question. Um, I would say that I am a Black millennial father. Uh, an HBCU graduate, uh, a creative strategist, an entrepreneur, and community and empowerment advocate. Um, My professional background uh, is in finance. I graduated from the illustrious Texas Southern University uh, and HBCU in Houston uh, with a degree in accounting and finance. Uh, Since then, I've worked in the oil and gas industry and public accounting for over seven years. Um, I'm also a, a very, very proud father of a nine-year-old daughter uh, who I love very, very much. And um, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a, a, found, a founding um, partner uh, with a creative agency here in Houston called Proper, Proper Creative Agency. Uh, so I, I guess that's enough, right? That's, that's that a little is bit enough. about myself. <laughs> that's enough. That, that's a lot of titles, particularly for a millennial, which uh, gives us a lot to to dig into. Um, yeah. I noticed that the first thing you brought up was the fact that you are a millennial father. And I know that's an integral part of your story. Um, and I, I definitely want to get there, right? Especially okay. because, you know, you were a young father, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about before we get to that, though, let's talk about your life leading up to that. Talk to me a little bit about your upbringing um, and really how you got to Texas Southern. Sure. Uh, great question. Uh, helping me become very reflective with that question. Uh, so originally I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, I grew up born and raised. My parents are from New Orleans as well. Um, I went to school in New Orleans, predominantly. Catholic private all boys schools uh, growing up uh, from let's see fifth through tenth grade uh, I was going to a Catholic uh, school and then tenth grade was when the devastating uh, 2005 devastating hurricane happened Hurricane Katrina and uh, so from there quick quick brief story uh, I remember the day like it was yesterday because in New Orleans. Uh, especially being close to the coast, we always get hurricanes, right? 
So um, at that time, you know, I think it was Hurricane George we've been through. I remember these vividly because I was pretty young at the time. And, um, you know, this Hurricane Katrina thing was just for us another hurricane, right? Um, we didn't expect to be displaced and move. Uh, so we kind of, I know I have a younger brother and an older sister. Uh, and we kind of, we didn't really take it seriously at all. Uh, as a last minute precaution, my mom decided um, to move, to leave the city and go to Baton Rouge where we had family. Literally, we, I left with maybe a, a, a tank top, some shorts, uh, some Nike slides. I remember that vividly. We hopped in a car. Um, it was my, my younger brother, my older sister, my mom. Uh, and my my sister's three sons, who were my uh, my three nephews at the time, and um, we hopped in the car and we left, and literally we have never gone back. So you already answered one of my questions because you know we we hear all these stories from all of us, even who were in other parts of the country, remember that time, and all these mm -hmm. stories about people who didn't leave because mm -hmm. a they've been through this before. B, they didn't have the resources to leave, et cetera. And then those who left with the expectation of we'll be right back, right? Like this right. is, we know, we know the drill here. It'll be fine. And of course, we all know the devastation that happened afterwards. But for your family, what, and for you particularly at that age, what was that like to witness the catastrophe that was Hurricane Katrina and know that I don't have anything to go back to? Man, it you know, I don't think it really hit me until maybe a years later, uh, a couple of years later. But at the time, I mean, I, I realized how serious it had become, you know, watching the news and and on the road. I mean, the, the highways were jam packed. I mean, yeah, people going to uh, Atlanta, yeah, people going to Houston, yeah, people just going right up the streets of Baton Rouge. So everyone was leaving at one time. And and I think it dawned on me right then and there that, hey, this may be more serious than uh, what we expect. So um, at that age, I think I was 14 at the time when it happened. Um, and I didn't take it seriously, honestly. I mean, this was a, a field trip, I guess. We were going up to Baton Rouge to visit some family and we will be right back. So um, I guess when it when it dawned on me and I, I really was able to understand that, hey, this is no longer the same. Um, and, you know, you, you start to see, you watch the news and you hear about people uh, dying and you hear about people stranded on top of the roofs of their homes. And um, it really dawned on me like, wow, this is this is something that I had no imagination that could possibly happen. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was initial. Initially, I think I believe I was kind of, you know, um, didn't take it really seriously. And then once the news hit how bad it really was, uh, then it hit me like, wow, I'm not only am I missing where I, I'm from, but my friends, family, I wonder how they're doing. You know, what's next? You know, I'm, I'm uh, a ninth grader at the time. Right. I'm a freshman in high school. And so and I had a younger brother who was in middle school. He was really excited about uh his journey uh and yeah everything that we knew is no longer the same so. so how did your family decide where to settle um so initially um going up the street to baton rouge uh just just as a a comfortable thing because we had family there so that was the initial plan uh but at the time i was going to a school in new orleans called jesuit and uh, there's Jesuits in California, there's Jesuits in, uh, there's a Jesuit in Dallas, Jesuit in Houston. And so um, I played on a baseball team and a basketball team. And uh, a lot of my friends were telling my mom and, and I that they were going to Houston. Uh, there was a strict Jesuit in Houston and they would accept us in uh, Houston and it would be a smooth transition. We didn't have to worry about anything. Um, and and actually, there was a very, very, very nice uh, family in Houston that gave us their home. Mm. Gave us their home. So, you know, making that transition, realizing that is, and I was raised by a single mom. So this is my mom making all the big decisions. Um, 
the biggest thing for her was job security and just security period. So um, the Houston thing, once we found out that we had somewhere to live, uh, we just left Baton Rouge and went straight to Houston. So I'm thinking about being a high school student, right? Like being that age at 14 and 15, you're already coming into yourself, trying to find a sense of belonging. You got your friend circle, hopefully. Transferring schools when it's not due to an environmental catastrophe is hard, right? Like, so under normal circumstances, military, family decides to move, parents take a new job, it's hard. Now, this situation you're in, you've lost everything. Mm-hmm. You're moving to another state. You're an athlete. So, of course, they're going to welcome you with open arms, yes. And there is help. There's this family that offered up their home to you. But the reality of it is you're a high school student who's now, uh, his whole friend circle is likely disbanded. So right. did, and when, when people go through that, particularly young kids and teenagers, there's often um, behavioral changes as well, emotional changes, all of that. Did you experience that? Or were you able to make a smooth transition to this new school and this new environment? Uh, I think I was kind of fortunate. Um, so although I did make a transition to a completely new environment, uh, I was still around the same classmates that I had. Uh, a lot of the kids that that went to high school with me in New Orleans, they transitioned to Houston as well. So, um, you know, I kind of had that baseline. And then... Um, Honestly, at the time, uh, so I went from Houston, I mean, New Orleans at Jesuit was all boys school, right? And then um, ninth grade transitioned from New Orleans to straight Jesuit in Houston, which was also an all boys school. But right across the street, it was an all girls school called St. Agnes. And so I was kind of excited to possibly be around uh, girls at the time, you know? So I guess my... In hindsight, I guess I was kind of optimistic about it because it was a new environment. It was this big city. And I had been in Houston uh, years, years back. My mom took my brother and I to Six Flags. And so Houston for us was like, oh, this is going to be fun again. Um, So, yeah, I think my transition, fortunately for me, when I think about it, uh, was pretty positive. Um, You know, I still had my my same kind of core group of friends and then uh you know we we had somewhere to live and I got to go to school around girls so it worked <laughs> out for me <laughs> yeah that that thinking is definitely akin to uh a teenage boy so I, I get mm-hmm. it I understand. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's the truth so it's one thing to transition and say okay I'm here um, I'm now going to high school uh, and in Houston that's affiliated with my school in New Orleans. It's another thing to say, I'm going to stay here for college as well, stay in Texas. So how'd that come about? Um, after graduating, so I graduated in, in Houston. Um, I really wanted to go to a school in New York called St. John's. I really wanted to go. Um, being raised by a single mom, uh, the biggest deterrent there was the ability to afford that type of education. So. Um, I remember after high school, my senior year, like being on the hunt for scholarships and sending out applications and stuff. And so uh, I sent out an application to St. John's, um, a couple, a couple other HBCUs, Morehouse, um, Southern was one of them, uh, U of H, all these schools. And so I got accepted into St. John's, but. Uh, at the time, I don't think we I could even afford to fly there. Like my mom couldn't even afford to send me there, uh, let alone go to the school itself. Uh, and I was partially awarded uh, scholarship money, but it just wasn't enough. Uh, so with that being said, I felt like it was important for me to stay kind of close to my mom. And then I had a younger brother as well, so who was still in high school. So I wanted to stay close. And um, Texas Southern gave me a full ride. Uh, academic scholarship uh, slash athletic scholarship uh, at at TSU. And uh, I mean, that was a no brainer for me after that. Um, I kind of went with, with, I learned a little bit more about the school and I wanted to be close to home. So that, that was how I made that decision. So we hear this story a lot in the black community where people have a dream school is where they want to go, but they can't go for financial reasons or other logistical 
obstacles that they need to overcome. So they they pick another school that makes more sense for their current situation. Now, I'm a firm believer that everything that happens in our lives is meant to push us in the direction we're supposed to go and push us to our purpose and destiny and all of that. But that doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge that structural inequality and the vast differences in socioeconomic status for some of us drives our decisions, right? It all ends up working out for our good, but it does limit us in some ways sometimes. So for you, have you ever thought about what if, like what if I would have gone to St. John's instead of staying in Texas? Absolutely. I think about it. Uh, and I have a constant reminder with my daughter being here, right? My my, my daughter's mom and I, uh, we met here in Houston. So uh, I have a physical reminder of, you know, my, my base Houston. But yeah, I think about it all the time. When you talk about the socioeconomic impediments that we have, uh, particularly in the Black community, you know, it, it it is something that I think about all the time and, and not as an individual, but as a community. Like, I would love uh, for us to have more opportunities uh, to further our education, um, you know, and, and not be not be stifled uh, by not having the money for it. So, yeah, man, if I was in New York and I, and I give you a, a, a forward story on that, uh, my girlfriend actually went to St. John's University, believe it or not. Crazy mm. as that is, yeah. Um, but but thinking about it, you know, there's no telling what my life would have been like. But I believe that it was written before, right? So the path that I'm I'm currently on was a route that uh, God wanted me to go on, and um, I have a beautiful blessing because of the path that uh, I chose to go on. But yeah, I, I think about it all the time, uh, and it's no telling. It's no telling. Where I would be, what I would be doing, um, but I'm I'm fortunate to be in the space that, that I am now uh, to be thankful for where my journey has taken me. Okay, so you get to Texas Southern, uh, the illustrious Texas Southern, as you there you go, call. there you go. All HBCU alums got an adjective uh, that they put before the name of their school. Rightfully so, rightfully so. We should. <laughs> yes, I'm com- I'm completely with it. Right, so you get there. Um, I did not go to an HBCU, but I have plenty of friends who did. And they talk about that experience, particularly my male friends, about like, you know, it's an experience, right? And you're there not only as a student, but a student athlete. And what sport were you playing there? Baseball. Okay. So you're playing baseball, but you stayed with your high school girlfriend. Is that correct? Uh, At the time, yeah. I mean, you're talking about a, a teenage kid who's in college close to home. I uh, went to all boys school pretty much for his entire life. So, I mean, I was very immature at that time. Uh, we were kind of on again, off again at the time. So yeah, that was, that was kind of that situation. Okay. So you're in this on again, off again situation, but playing sports. So what, what was that time like at first, right? Managing all of that, were you successful academically? You know, some people go to school and like lose their minds. Like what camp did you fall <laughs> Uh, so, uh, the summer of my freshman year, um, we had kind of this training camp for baseball and, uh, I suffered a really bad injury, um, playing baseball open to home plate and like, uh, broke my ankle really, mm. really bad. Yeah. Really badly. And so at that time, again, I was on, uh, academic slash athletic scholarship but most of the money was an academic scholarship. So um, I was really focused on school once that happened. Like, I think my mindset had changed at the time after I got injured, because uh, then I realized like, wow, this could be gone in the blink of an eye. So uh, let me kind of change my mindset. Uh, and so I did very, very well in school. Um, freshman year, I, I had honors. Um, awards for my grades. I think I had like a 3.9 GPA at that time. And then um, I also was doing work study as well. So I, I was pretty, pretty active. Um, I think my mindset at the time was, hey, control the controllables and do the best you can and make your mom proud. Um, I, I didn't have resentment for not being able to go to St. John's, but I wanted to make the best of my situation. So 
uh, I definitely put my best foot forward. I, I was a pretty good student uh, my freshman and sophomore year, for sure. Mm-hmm. So when did you find out in this journey that you were going to be a father? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> my, bar- my daughter was born in 2011. So in 2010, which is my sophomore year, uh, I found out. And um, yeah, it's ex- ex- completely unexpected. Um, you know, my my first reaction, uh, denial, I didn't really believe it was real. I didn't believe it was true. Uh, I wanted to see, you know, where she was and what she wanted to do at the time. You know, I told her, hey, we just kids. What do you exactly you want to do? And so I remember that mindset, uh, being a sophomore in school, uh, really worrying about, you know, my future and and what decisions I needed to make now so that my future will be bright. So that was like definitely a curveball at the time. Now, just for clarity's sake, was this with your on again, off again? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Same, yeah. same person. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. this young woman who had been around since high school, I'm sure your family knew who she was, all of that. What was that conversation with your mom like? Whoa, man, mom is a superwoman. You know, she um, she has burdened uh, the brunt of parent, parenting uh, forever, as long as I can remember. My, my dad wasn't really involved uh, growing up and, you know, my upbringing. So disappointing my mom was like, whew. That's a whole lot. Even even thinking about having that type of conversation with my mom, because uh, I didn't want to disappoint her, right? Like I wanted to, I wanted to make her proud. I wanted to do things, uh, you know, the the way that she taught me to do it. We we were raised in the church, so my mom is definitely uh, one of those those black 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 Baptist moms, you know. So yeah. Extremely difficult. And uh, I, I think I was pleasantly surprised by her response. You know, uh, she was disappointed. She did tell me that. And she told me, you know, well, now you have to make some decisions and figure out uh, how are you going to uh, evolve your lifestyle so that you can uh, be a, a great father to your, your child that's about to be born. So although it was disappointment, uh, like always, my mom is very good at reaffirming things and, and making you look at things from a different perspective. Uh, so from there, I was definitely motivated uh, that it wasn't the end of the world and I could make something happen. So at that point, because motivated and then actually executing, right, to say, all right, I'm 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 locked in. I got to figure out how to make this work. Two different things. So yep. from a logistical perspective, particularly because she had gone to school somewhere else, what did that look like for you? Um, so, basically, you know, she was still in Houston. And um, mm. at the time, I still, although I got the motivation and um, I understood what it was, and I knew what type of father I wanted to be. Like you said, the execution of that is, is could be different. Um, so, so during that time, I know I had a lot of tough conversations with her, trying to understand, like, you know, what was her long-term plan and how did it coincide with my plan? And, you know, is this somebody that I wanted to be with long-term? Like, you know, it, 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 do I want to be in Houston all this time or do I want to move? Or, you know, and eventually um, we came to the conclusion that, hey, you know, she's going to be here in Houston and um, I need to make uh, the best decision, period. So I, I decided to stay here in Houston and, continue on my education and, and try my best to uh, do well in school so that I can get a good job and be a, a, a good provider. You know, that was something that I wanted to do. So uh, that's kind of how that looked at that time. So did you have concerns about, all right, I still have some time left on my academic journey. This kid is going to be here before I finish. How am I going to financially support her? How did you work through that? Man, I had a village. I man, I was very fortunate. I tell people this all the time. You know, um, at the time, you know, I was 20 years old when my daughter was born. And my mom, my older sister, I have uh, nephews, my brother. I mean, everybody, you know, pitched in. And it wasn't even a question. You know, they helped out as much as they could. Um, and at the time, man, I was 
hustling. You know, I, I was working. I had a job. I had work study. I had a job off campus. And then I was very, very motivated to find uh, internships, paid internships. So um, my sophomore year, I got an internship for oil and gas company. Uh, and that, that helped out a lot, you know. And then my junior year, did the same thing. I had another internship. And senior year, like I was a working man, you know. Um, uh, fortunately, I was blessed enough to, you know, have those opportunities. I know a lot of people aren't, but I was hustling. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't want, you know, I, I talk to a lot of men all the time about their journey in fatherhood. And um, me and my dad, we're very, very close now. Uh, but but then we weren't as close as we were. And I had this example of how I didn't want to be. So I, I didn't want to fail my daughter for sure, but I didn't want to fail myself. So uh, I just took it very serious and tried to excel as much as I could, found jobs and, and had a village. That's how I can answer that. I had a village. Mm-hmm. Which speaks to who we are as a people, right? And I'm not saying it doesn't happen in, in other races or cultures, but we may be disappointed, but for the most part, we rally, right, around yep. a young person who has made a mistake, right? And mm-hmm. and this this baby's coming and we're going to love yep. it. We're going to support you, you know, through this. So that's that's one thing I cherish about us as a community. For the most part, we'll get over whatever negative feelings we have and we'll extend grace, right? Um, mm-hmm. so those, and there, there are those outliers who don't function like that. But, you know, we hear these stories all the time about how... The aunties, everybody rallies to help. Yep. If you decide you want to be there and you want to show up and provide, they'll do what they can to help. Yep. Yep. So yep. you become a young father, but mm-hmm. you're still doing everything right, irrespective of what the motivating factor was. Like we we all want to get out there and get those internships and set ourselves up for um, a good job, right? When, when college right. is all said and done. So where did you land after graduation? Uh, so I, I actually landed with, uh, one of the oil and gas companies that uh, I interned with. So they extended a full-time offer upon my graduation and uh, I accepted it and immediately went into working uh, as a financial analyst uh, at the time. So that was, you know, again, like <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of friends and I, and everyone has different situations and, and different stories. And, uh, you know, the more I talk to them, the more I realize how blessed I was to have a job getting out of straight, straight out of school. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that was kind of my journey. Right. And, you know, you can not to defame HBCUs, but one of the things that I've heard from graduates of HBCUs, like I came out of school, I had this degree, but I had no access right, to <laughs> corporate, the corporate jobs that I wanted. And that's not the case everywhere, but um, it is something that happens where people go to school, they get good grades, and then they still fall short of getting a job that pays really well because nobody's recruiting at the school. The internships didn't happen. There was no feeder, right? There's no feeder program from student to uh, professional. So for you to have that experience um, is commendable. But how did you track down those internships? Was it from with your university's help from their employment division or otherwise? Yeah, we had. So um, shout out to my undergraduate school. Um, Jesse H. Jones School of Business, uh, we had um, kind of like this career placement center. Uh, and I remember uh, the, the the professor at the time that was in charge of the placement center, Professor Yolanda Gaines, shout out to her. She, she was very essential to me landing that. So um, she was like my best friend. I used to go up there and talk to her from time to time. And uh, we would review my resume at that point in time and seeing uh, what was out there. And you're 100% right. Like there was not a feeder uh, system where we had access to these things. And so uh, funny story, actually, Miss um, Gaines, we were real cool. I mean, she would she would text me, you know. Um, and so I remember there was a recruitment program on uh, where a bunch of schools were going to U of H. U of H was across the street from where we were. And uh, I remember I was working at um, at the gym at the time, a work-study job, and I got a text from uh, Professor Gaines, and she said, hey, 
Uh, I think there are a couple of recruiters that are coming down from said companies and it's a possibility uh, that they're coming over here. Um, could you get here at four o'clock and be ready for an interview? It's three o'clock. <laughs> it's three o'clock at the time. So um, I, I ran to my boss and I told him, hey, I'm going to have to take off early because my shift is actually over at five. And I'm not sure. You know what? Actually, uh, one of the recruiters was uh, an alumni of Texas Southern. So I'm sure he has some influence on them. I don't think the original plan was to go from U of H to TSU. And I think he has some influence over that. And so I literally ran to to my uh, my my apartment, uh, which was on campus. I ran to my apartment, uh, took a shower, got dressed. She sent me a couple of the companies. I like Googled them while I was brushing my teeth. I looked up like some high level stuff. I checked out. Uh, one thing I did learn, um, you know, especially working in finance and accounting, I wanted to have an understanding of their performance and their peers. Right. So like I, I checked, did a quick look at like their balance sheet and um, I had an understanding of who their peers were. And this is literally like I'm ran home, took a shower, you know, put on a, a suit and I'm brushing my teeth and on on Google looking at these companies and seeing what type of information I can get real quick. Uh, so with about 10 minutes to spare, I run into uh, the building where they were having the interviews. I'm greedy. And I, I think at this point I was kind of sweating. I had like a little towel and I'm wiping my, my head off <laughs> and uh, I'm sitting in this room right before there's an interview. So there were apparently interviews going on before me. And so, uh, yeah, it was like, for me, I remember that, that time and what mindset I was in. I was like, uh, this is mine. Like I gotta, I gotta put my best forward my best foot forward and controller controllables. I always say that like at the end of the day, if you play a, a, a full game and you left everything on the field and you left everything on the court, what else can you, what else can you do? Right. So that was my thing. I'm going to leave it all on the court and I'm going to do my best. And uh, I, I think I did well. I got, I got the internship and it ended up um, offering me a full-time position there. And what's crazy about this is that, you know, people, prepare for interviews for days or weeks and you literally are pulling stuff off the internet in the final few minutes before you're going to go uh, and to actually have this conversation, which speaks to your drive, but not, not only that, your ability to process and retain information under pressure, which everybody can't do. Mm, well, I didn't think about that, but thank you. I, I guess so. Yeah. I, and I will say that, um, you know, lacking experience and, you know, one one thing that I know helped me out a lot was my my GPA, right? Uh, my GPA, my ability to communicate, I think at the time um, I communicated, you know, you, you have these behavioral questions, you know, what will you do in this situation? And the only experience you have to pull from is kind of classroom, uh, you know, situation. So um, I knew that, but I, I wanted to separate myself by, uh, having something about the company, whether it was peers, their peer group, or uh, whatever it was, I just remember like, you know, you done, you control the controllables. Your GPA is fine. Uh, be yourself. Kill this interview and give them something that they're probably not expecting from a sophomore in college, right? So, I, 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 that was my kind of tactical approach to it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think I, I did anything crazy special like i have this amazing ability to retain information it was just the drive it was just like the hustle like i i gotta get it you know that that was kind of the mentality Mm -hmm. so if we fast forward to graduation you transition into uh your full-time career in oil and gas and Mm -hmm. we all know that there's some job security there natural resources energy all of that is is very different than some other potential industries that you can go in so and you've continued with the same company right yeah yeah and and you talk about security i mean you would think so but you know over the years the the price oil and gas is kind of predetermined by um how well the market is doing right so you know, just regular supply and demand. You know, if, if there is a need 
for uh, these resources than the price spikes. And there's a lot of other government gov- governing bodies and regulations that kind of regulate the pricing. But, you know, over the years, I've seen this thing go as high as 110 bucks all the way down to five. Right. So and I'm talking about oil prices. And so, uh, yeah, I've survived a bunch of layoffs and uh, I've been fortunate at that time to, you know, kind of be on a, the, the other side of that. But yeah, it, you know, depending on your discipline, uh, especially within the industry, it, it may not be as secure as people may think. Mm, that's good. Uh, that's good yeah. information. So what spurred you to start this side business as well? Was it the, okay, this job might not be here forever or was it a way to supplement income? Was it just a passion? What drove you to that? Uh, so my, in college, I had a really good friend of mine. His name is Manny. And, uh, he and I, and we just always connected on like a creative level. Um, I've always been a writer, I would say, uh, in school, I worked for like the newspaper and I was the editor in chief and I did the yearbook. And so I always had a passion for writing outside of, you know, the finance type of thing, uh, that I did. And so, uh, he and I used to play ball together and this is one of the most creative guys I knew um and he was talking about you know starting this this thing I think I want to start like this creative agency man you think you would be down uh to work with me on on something like that? I'm like yeah 100% so this is back in I want to say 2012 uh we officially started in 2014 and um yeah it was kind of just so his background uh, he went to TSU as well. Uh, he he was in the pharmacy school, and um, he was also working as a designer, graphic designer for um, a furniture company. And I think he saw, and this is during during college, I believe. I think he saw a lot of opportunities for him to take his skill set and uh, you know start something, start something up. And so uh, he we we talked about it then and. Um, it was an opportunity. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur because I never believed in having one source of income. Um, you know, goes back to having that stability, you know, having a daughter to raise and not ever putting yourself in a position where someone can say, hey, we don't need you anymore. Your services are no longer needed. Fend for yourself. Uh, I, I think my mentality has always been that way. And especially in that back to being displaced by the hurricane, right? Like there's certain things that are out of your control. Uh, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to be proactive and not reactive? So, um, yeah, it started off as a, as an idea, somebody that I value very highly. And, uh, yeah, we, we, we started this thing from the, the ground up. And um, just in December, uh, we just celebrated uh, seven years. Mm. So that's incredible when I think about it. But yeah, it was just an opportunity. Uh, we had belief in ourselves and uh, we were just going to figure it out. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. So how have you managed to balance full-time corporate gig, being a dad, and also sustaining another company for all this time? And you got your, you got your nine to five. And then you got your, your, your after hours, right? You got your six to 12, six to one, whatever it is. So, um, but fortunately, man, uh, Manny, he was able to quit his job. He, he did uh, the agency uh, full time. So no way I could have done it or thought about doing any of this on my own. Uh, and honestly, it was having someone that I valued and respected in my corner uh, to continue to, to grow and develop the business while I was doing X, Y, and Z, you know, during the daytime. Um, so yeah, it was, it was honestly having him. And then whenever I would leave my job, I would do all I could during those hours to, to continue to push the business. Mm -hmm. So looking back at your life personally, you had mentioned earlier a driver, uh, for you to be a present father is that you didn't at the time, you weren't close with your your dad, and now that has since changed. So, how did that transition come about? Because often you hear the opposite: like one's 
kids get to a certain age, if a, if a parent wasn't present in those early formative years, and now they've reached a certain level of stability and success, they're not really trying to hear it. So what happened in your life that you did have the opportunity to reconnect with your dad and, and build that strong foundation in a close relationship? That's a great question. Um, you know, very interesting because you'll hear these stories about how uh, kids who were never even around their dad or their parents. And like my mom always used to say, well, yeah, just like your daddy. Oh, you know, it, it was certain stuff that my younger brother would do. And my mom would be like, oh, my God, you look just like your father. And, you know, I think growing and understanding that, you know, when you when you have a child biologically, part, part of those chromosomes come from your mom and your dad. And so uh, I had this very, very deep, deep journey to understand who I was outside of, you know, uh, superficial stuff. Right. Like I. I needed to understand what what type of person my dad was growing up. What things did he um, did he he learn? And I, I just had this this yearning to understand him. And so, um, yeah, you know, it was tough. It was tough for my mom uh, trying to raise two boys and an older daughter on her own. And um, after I got past the kind of resentment, like, man, you left my mom high and dry. After I got past that. I wanted to understand his story because there's always context that I don't I don't think that it uh necessary necessarily validates decisions, but it's context that'll give you perspective. And so um I started to really try to nurture my relationship with my father. And you know, here we, we started to have real conversations and I I now I have a very a much better understanding of where he was in his life and the things that he was going through. And, um, yeah, like, honestly, it was just one of those things where I had this deep yearning to understand who he was. And I wanted to nurture and cultivate a relationship because I also wanted my daughter to have uh, a grandfather in her life. You know, my grandparents were uh, deceased before I was born. So I I never got that chance to have kind of that that wisdom. And, you know, I always hear people talk about their grandparents and stuff. I never can relate because I never had that, right? So I wanted my daughter to have everything I didn't have. And so it was important for me to to nurture that relationship the best way I can, I could, despite, you know, the impediments that we had early on in my life. So what was that like for your mom, right? Because sometimes, not always, but sometimes for the present parent, when an adult child or a young adult child decides to pursue a relationship with the, the absent parent, there's a bit of trepidation there. Like, I, I've been here for you. You don't know the whole story. Why are you now trying to pursue that? Was your mom supportive of that? Or did she have some stuff that she needed to work through as well? I, I tell you what, you're asking all the right questions because that is a hell of a question. Um, you know, my mom... Of course, I think she she wants us to have a relationship with our father. I think inside, through her core, she wants that. But I think she never wants us to forget. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, you know, have you have you thought about this? And have you? Because you know, I'm I'm still waiting for my 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 Dreamcast that my father promised me when I was a kid, right? And she remembers that disappointment in. She remembers that. I don't know if it's a trigger for her or what, but, you know, her her thing is protecting her babies and I'm, we're no longer babies anymore. But, um, yeah, it's difficult. I, I think she wants to support as much as she, she can. Right. But she wants to, to let us know that, you know, you can't change uh, a zebra stripes. You know, it, it is what it is. And, and so I always go back and forth. But. I think I'm in a, a very fortunate position to be able to have the emotional intelligence to understand what my mom's been through and understand, you know, her perspective. And then also at the same time, understand what my dad had to go through, whatever that is, and want to move forward. Right. So you, you can't change other people, but you can change your situation and you can do the best you can to have context for things so that you can move forward. And in my particular case, 
my motivating factor was my daughter. I wanted her to experience uh, my dad. My dad, great guy, funny guy, um, very, very smart person. Uh, Loves to have a good time. And so I see a lot of characteristics about myself and my father. And it would be, I think it'd be a, a real tragedy for my, my, my daughter not to have that relationship with my father. So that, that trumped all. Although I didn't have her full support, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I had to make sure I understood what was going to happen in the future. And uh, yeah, that was my driving, my driving force right there. And I'm glad you brought up emotional intelligence because it, it takes that to navigate these kinds of situations. It's one thing to be a kid and you really don't have that much of a say. And it's another thing to move into adulthood and decide how you're going to interface and interact with, with each parent. And it takes somebody with a high EQ to say, listen, I understand where she's coming from because of what she experienced and what she's seen through her lens. And I have to be sensitive to that. But this is what I need to do for me. And at the same time, looking at the absent parent, understanding what they have the capacity to give you and what they don't. Right. And, and managing your expectations accordingly. And not everybody is able to do that. Right. It, it, yep. it feel like I have to pick sides. Like, you know, um, my mom mm-hmm. was the one that was here and, you know, my dad had his issues. So I, I have to align my allegiances with her. I got to align with yep. her. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they haven't been able to get past that. And not for everybody, but for some, it's a lost opportunity, right? There, there are certain mm-hmm. parents you probably best served keeping them uh, not only at arm's length, but completely somewhere else. But if there's yep. an opportunity for reconciliation and there are things that you haven't forgotten either, like you brought up that Dreamcast, but that failure from your father is not driving how you see him today, right? right. And that's right. important. That's important. Right. So what, I mean, go ahead. And failures don't define who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I will say in my college experience, I'm, I'm also a member of uh, Alpha Phi Alpha. Um, and so I remember that process as well. And you know, I had 12 other line brothers. And to this day, because of our process and the things that we were exposed to collectively together, to this day, because of the ups and downs, I know how each one of those will react in certain environments, right? And 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 I, I bring that up because um, that perspective made me have an even greater relationship with my father because although, you know, put in tough situations then, you know, doesn't mean that you can't come out of it later on. And so I, I learned that from my line brothers. And um, I really, 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 I think that helped me uh, with my relationship with my dad, you know. Yeah. And I think that community, you know, people who listen to the show regularly know that that we have a strong connection to Alpha Phi Alpha. There <laughs> we go. There we go. I love to hear it. Um, <laughs> some of the longest interviews with Alpha, that's a running joke as well, because y'all can talk. Um, <laughs> but I think that's an important thing to bring up because that sense of community with black men and seeing them in a vulnerable state, seeing them under pressure, all of those things can help you to have a different perspective uh, and a different sensitivity in a way you may not have. And, And I just commend you because I think too often, you know, as a black woman, you look at male friends, people that you've dated, and you can see unresolved hurt from things that happen with a dad or a mom, you know, from childhood that have not been addressed head on and is now affecting how they interface with other people in their lives or how they build their family. So, you know, I commend you for working through that in some level and being able to see your father in a different light and build that relationship for the benefit of your daughter and frankly, for the benefit of yourself as well. Well, Thank you. Thank you very much. That means a lot. So I know that you did not stop there as well in terms of um, how you view and approach fatherhood, but also you're putting that out into the world. You created a, a, a blog, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I created a blog called Catching My Stride. And um, this year I'm really excited because it's 
a lot of things that are brewing that I've been working on uh, for a couple of years now uh, that are going to hopefully show the light of day this year. Um, but yeah, catching my stride is exactly that. Like I, I believe that when it comes to parenthood, you know, I think particularly in the black community, and I know I, I experienced this through my mom raising us, you know, we'll do everything we can. We'll sacrifice a lot of things to make sure that our kids are good, whether that's protecting them or providing for them or, you know, uh, exposing them to certain things, you know, we'll, we'll do, we'll do a lot. But I be- also believe that's important, but I also believe uh, fulfilling and becoming the best version of yourself is as essential as, uh, you know, sacrificing for your kids. So Catching My Stride is exactly that. It's a, it's a blog where I chronicle the complexities of fatherhood, but at the same time, it's my journey as an individual of trying my best to, uh, you know, actually affirm my potential, you know. Uh, you hear about potential and wasted talent and has-beens and never making it to what you want to be. Uh, I talk to my dad all the time and he, you know, he always has these amazing stories about, you know, what he did and back then. And and I'm always thinking to myself, man, I never want to talk to my kid about nothing like this. I never, I never want them to look at me as you know, somebody that had all these great, amazing plans, but never fulfilled it because of X, Y, and Z. Um, I I want to maximize who I am. And I believe that God always has put all of us on this earth for a purpose. And um, my my biggest, my, I would say there was a, a, a potential failure uh, in, in my life, it would be not being, not fulfilling my purpose. And of, of course, I think that's a, uh, ongoing thing where you figure out it as you grow, but I want to continue to grow and evolve in that process. And uh, I, I believe the only way you can be the greatest parent is to be the greatest version of yourself. So uh, that's kind of that the blog uh, catching my stride is about. Um, it's it's really like a, a a digital diary to my 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 daughter and my future kids to kind of give them context and perspective. Uh, of where I am in my life currently and decisions that I made, I made those decisions. You know, um, I always say, I have a mentor of mine who always tells me uh, intentions mean nothing, right? Like having intentions, you got the greatest intentions in the world. And there's some people who are, uh, you know, six feet deep who had the greatest intentions. Somebody said they were going to be the next Steve Jobs, but Intentions mean nothing if you don't if you don't actualize some of the things you have intentions on. So uh, I just try to live by that, and um, that's been another driving factor of mine. I, I don't want to be a has-been. I want to be very proactive and not reactive uh, when it comes to things. So that's that's kind of what the blog is about. Yeah, it's um you know you brought up listening to your your dad and some of the thoughts that came out of that, and I brought this up on the show before. I always say that like one of the markers of adulthood and coming into yourself is recognizing your parents' shortcomings, right? You don't hold it against them, but you Mm -hmm. you see them not just as an elder figure, but a a person who's fully operating in their humanity, which there may be shortcomings. There may be dreams that were hopes, hopes and dreams that were dashed. All these things that have contributed to who we are, who they are and who we are. And people respond to those things in a different way. But the healthy, the healthy way to do it is to say, I acknowledge that that's their story. I don't necessarily want that to be my story. And what can I do to course correct? So that stops. And that generational curse is not passed down again. Um, yeah. So you, I mean, let me tell you, you, you on the right track in a, in a, lot, of, <laughs> in a lot of ways. So you mentioned other kids, right? So there's always that mm-hmm. thought of, I have this child who I adore, um, but I plan or I hope to have uh, more kids and a, and a family as well later. Have you thought about what that might look like and what that experience may be for your for your daughter? Because I presume she's not with you full time. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So, you know, there's always these stories of like these little nuclear families with these cute little kids. And then there's that teenager or that preteen who's from a previous relationship. 
um, who's somewhere else and coming to visit the family and there's this whole life that happens. Are you concerned about that in any way um, or thinking about it at all? I, I definitely do think about it. I'm not necessarily concerned in a negative way, but I'm very optimistic. Um, my daughter's mom, she is, she has, she has two other kids as well. So um, naturally my daughter is already a big sister. So, um, and she, you know, I always tell people she's nine going on 16 because she, I think she has seen a lot with us being young parents, right? And um, she also has had a lot of context to go with that. And now she's a big sister. And so um, I completely embrace it. I'm excited, you know, when that time uh, to to have more kids and have a, a family, an extended family, now that I, I can't wait because I know for a fact that my daughter knows that um, within my capacity, I try my best to do everything to make sure her life is going in a positive direction. But I also try my best to expose her to as much as possible. Like um, we travel, you know, we we travel a lot. Um, I try my best to expose her to things. Like if I'm if I'm doing something, I'm going somewhere or handling business or whatever. And she's with me. I try my best to have her with me. So you know, she may not have the the capacity to understand what it is, but maybe later on it'll help build that context so she can understand. Um, and I'm, I'm just also very, very open about um, getting her involved as much as possible. Like we didn't try everything: tennis, uh, softball, soccer. Um, you know, I I she has school. But she also has another curriculum, and that's her dad curriculum, certain stuff that she has to do, um, you know, certain certain uh, homework problems that I give her that may not be assigned from her parent, from her teacher. <laughs> and she probably hates me for it, but I'm sure later on she'll she'll appreciate it. Um, now that, you know, exactly what it'll look like, and hopefully um, she embraces, you know, her future younger siblings. Um, but I'm honestly very optimistic, optimistic and exciting about it. I'm, I'm kind of thinking because I, man, people who know me through and through know that my daughter is my everything. I, I really, really, really um, try my best uh, to provide her with the best thing that I, I can give her. I really do try that, and so I'm kind of concerned about my future kids if they find out and they may get jealous because you know that's what I'm thinking, but. That's my thinking on it. I think I think it should be fine, man. I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. So before we let you get out of here in a few, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Extraordinary on an ordinary day. Okay, I'll, I'll give a, a a funny story. And and I've I've listened to uh, your show plenty of times, and uh, I'm really excited uh, to be on here. And honest, honestly. Uh, and I've heard all type of stories. I, I'm going to share a, a very, very funny story, I think. Uh, so, you know, I, I think I listened to one of the episodes where we were talking, you guys are talking about, you know, code switching and how, uh, you know, you got to kind of adapt and certain stuff that we can't do. And, you know, those, well, not that we can't do that we choose not to do so that we don't put ourselves in a, uh, a, a tough position later on. Uh, so, you know, I go by Will. Uh, my friends call me Will at work. They call me Will as well. And I've I've cultivated uh, friends, different likes of life uh, all over the place. And so uh, one really good friend of mine at work, a work buddy, um, it's a white guy. Um, there was like a chili cook-off at work. Chili cook-off. And so he stopped by. We were real cool. At, at my office and say, hey, man, you going to come to the chili cook-off? And, and I, I don't know about y'all, but I don't really like to eat people's food outside of my my home. You know. <laughs> Names, um, I don't do the work potlucks. I'm not really interested in that at all. I'm not. And and this is a big thing at the time. It was this chili cook-off. And, um, you know, they had been prepping and, and kind of sending out emails about it for almost three, four weeks at the, at the time. It was supposed to be a big thing. And so I was trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this? Because obviously this is the talk of the, 
the town right now. So uh, he came by. It was happening the next day. And I told him that um, I, I wasn't going to participate. I told him, yeah, this is a, a buddy of mine. I told him, I don't know how I'm going to get out of it, but tomorrow, don't come looking for me, man. I'm not going to be taste testing the chili, whatever. I'm not, don't don't be looking for me. So um, the next day comes and he comes to my office and he's like, hey, it's about to happen. Are you coming? And I told him I had the stomach ache and I wasn't going to be able to, to come in. So I, And I told him straight up, I said, hey, Man, if I was you, I wouldn't even I, I wouldn't even taste it either. Like that's up to you. So um, <laughs> he he proceeded. He left my office and he uh, he he went to the chili cook-off. and I think he had a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so um, this is all in the kitchen area at the time. Uh, and so we all kind of all of us kind of congregated in the kitchen area and. Uh, I'm having this conversation with one of my coworkers and out of the corner of my eye, uh, I see the guy that I, his, his name will not be mentioned. I see the guy in the, out of the corner of my eye and he's enjoying the chili. And maybe about 10 seconds later, this guy hurls everywhere. everywhere. Oh my God. <laughs> he hurls everywhere. It is a scene. It's a massacre. It is uh it, it, it's unbelievable, honestly. And uh, he's he's not feeling well. And one of the one of my coworkers, a, a lady, went over to try to help him out. And he was like, "No, it's okay. I'm fine." He was frustrated. Uh, Leave me alone. I got it. You know, he was embarrassed. You know, it was so many people. And uh, you know, I, after it was all said and done, uh, I spoke with him, and uh, I told him, "Hey, man, I, I told you, I, I wouldn't have done that." You know, and he he told me uh, that he he appreciated what he I was trying to let him know ahead of time, uh, but now he knows. So I uh, I wanted to be more lighthearted on this question because uh, in terms of symbolism, I think when it comes to being proactive and understanding, you know, what potential things are out there, I think it's important for us to. Heed that advice uh, the best way we can in, in life period. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned that have happened before you. So let that be a lesson uh, for somebody out there. You know, uh, if you have things that you are apprehensive about, uh, you have your reasons for and affirm, stick to those beliefs and uh, you won't you won't be hurling and embarrassed like like other people. And listen, there there is some credibility to some of our cultural norms. Some of them don't make sense, but mm-hmm. you can't eat from everybody's house. That's all I'm mm-hmm. saying. That's a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> so you're also starting a podcast. Yes. yes Do you want yes, to plug yes. that? Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm actually launching a nonprofit this year called Black Fathers. And um, Black Fathers near and dear to my heart. Uh, we want to become a parental resource for men of all colors, um, particularly black men. And we want to dispel the misconceptions about black fatherhood, period. So a part of that, uh, we have a podcast that I'm launching with uh, a very close friend of mine. His name is Elsie, uh, and it's called The Girl Dad Experience. And uh, basically, you know, it's just real, real informal, like like we are right here. We just having real conversations about uh, decisions and as a girl dad, particularly, but particularly as a black man and uh, how we are navigating through life, everything, right? And just having that real uh, conversation. So expect that sometime in uh, February. Um, I got some big things coming up. We got some really cool guests that we'll have on the show. And uh, it's called a Girl Dad Experience. You can follow that on Instagram, Girl Dad Experience. We don't have anything up yet, um, but you can also go to blackfathers.com, B-L-K, fathers, F-A-T-H-E-R-S.com. And uh, we got a lot of good things brewing uh, this year, so I'm excited about it. And if people want to contact you for anything else, namely your creative agency or just to network, where can they find you? Sure. Um, you can you can find us at um, the creative agency is Proper Creative. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Proper 
P-R-A-U-P-E-R, creative. Um, or you can go to proper.com uh, to contact us. And my Instagram handle is at catch, catch my stride, catch my stride. Um, and my blog is also catchingmystride.com. So got a, got a bunch of stuff going on. Uh, feel free to send me a, a message or anything. I would love to help anyone who needs that. Listen, I, I have really enjoyed this conversation and I say that probably every week, but I think it's important. I mean, people know that I've mentioned it several times. We have a lot of black men on this show um, and it just sort of happens that way. It's not intentional. Sometimes it takes us longer to pin women down to come on. I don't know why, Uh, but it's important for me uh, to help to further the narrative that has always existed of black men who are whole or working towards their their wholeness and their well-being, their present fathers. Uh, they're working to equip the next generation and doing what they can to move the culture forward in a lot of different ways. So I commend you. Thank you for coming on and contributing to that work for us because it's important. Um, and I look forward to see to seeing what you do in the future, even in this year with the things you've got coming up. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I particularly love this podcast because it's it's amazing, right? You guys, even the concept of December 26th, uh, I love the idea of, of having to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. And so I'm honored to be a part of this. And uh, I, we'll have to have uh, you guys on too uh, in the future. We got some things brewing I would love for you guys to be a part of. So uh, again, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And you know, I can I can offer the perspective as a the daughter of a dad who wasn't necessarily around and people okay. who, who really filled in the gap for me. And, and I think there's, that's a whole other conversation we can have, but there's an, there's an expectation that when you're a woman who didn't have a father, that there are certain stereotypes that you fall into, not realizing mm-hmm. going back to what we talked about now full circle at the beginning of this interview about a village stepping in and what that mm-hmm. means. And people don't realize that my standards when it comes to when it comes to men, doesn't come from what my father didn't do. It comes from what the men who were present did. Wow. So wow. you know, there. I think sometimes we get a bad rap. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We were raised by you know single moms, not realizing that many of us had amazing godfathers and uncles that said, "No, this is what a man is supposed to do, and I'm going to stand in a gap for you. I'm going to provide for you financially. Yeah. I'm going to be present. I'm going to support you." Uh, so that you know that there's a standard that you can hold these men to when it's your turn uh, to date. Yes, so ma'am. listen, if you're going to have one, women on the show, I'm there. You can count on I, me. I, I know who to call then. I know who to call. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for that perspective for sure. And to our listeners, listen, we dug into a lot. William has got a number of things going on. You've got a, a few different channels you can find him on. Support what he's doing. We've got to support each other, right? Most you know, I, I sometimes say we all we got, even though many of us have allies uh, across the table as well. But it's important that we support our own and advance our initiatives and the things that we are being purposeful and passionate about. So go ahead and find him online, but also find us. Like, share, subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed it. If something resonated with you, tell somebody about it. We're not really spending marketing dollars yet, so our listeners are the marketer. Uh, Help us spread the word. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 